Hello, and welcome back to the Annual Meeting Podcast. My name is Ryan LaFollette. I'm the chair of the Virtual Presence Committee here at SAM, and we have a great slate of plenary abstracts to discuss today, as well as an interview with Dr. Westifer about her FOMED Excellence in Education Award. Let's get started. Hi, this is Carly Easton from the SAM Virtual Presence Committee, and I'd like to introduce today Dr. Daniel Nishijima, who is a professor and vice chair of research for the Department of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis. He is presenting one of his research projects as a plenary abstract author for his abstract titled Impact of Race and Ethnicity on Emergency Medical Services Administration of Opioid Pain Medications for Injured Children. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Nishijima. Thanks, Carly. Glad to be here. The research you're presenting here at SAM looks at potential disparities in pain medication administered in the pre-hospital setting. How did you become interested and why, why do you feel this is important? Yeah, so this is my first study evaluating disparities in healthcare. Uh, most of my prior research was in trauma and neurological emergencies. Um, you know, and, and I think we really need more than ever to ensure that all patients, regardless of race, ethnicity, age, gender, religion, receive equally high, high quality and compassionate emergency care. Yeah, I agree. And understanding that current racial and ethnic disparities in all areas of healthcare are really hot topics right now. How do you feel that research is evolving to meet that demand? So at UC Davis, we, we have a disparities in equity expert, Tiffany Johnson, uh, who's just fantastic. Um, and she's really a nationally renowned uh, expert in this area. And, and she's always recommended that uh, we should be thinking about these disparities at the beginning of studies, um, rather at the end, and to always, always consider evaluating this in, in your research study um, as you embark at the very, at the very beginning. Um, you know, I think, you know, this was, uh, this study that we did was a secondary analysis of, uh, of, uh, of a prospective study conducted by uh, Lauren Brown. Uh, who's a PI at um, in Wisconsin, and you know, is a it was a great data set, really high quality data. Um, but um, looking at race and ethnicity disparities uh, was was a was really a secondary analysis. And so, there's definitely things that we would change um, if we if we had to go back and do things over again. Um, you know, first off, ensuring that race and ethnicity is is captured directly from the patient. Um, you know, rather than, you know, from the physician or from the, the hospital records, uh, which is often, often missing. Um, so again, capturing it directly from the patients, really, really the, the gold standard, you know, and then also making sure that the study is adequately powered to, to evaluate uh, a specific, um, uh, you know, effect size with the, with the disparities. Um, you know, I think that that's something that uh, you need to make sure of, um, um, when you plan um, really at the beginning of the study rather than at the end, you know, in, in our study, even though there was no statistically significant differences in the, in the primary analysis between races and ethnicities, I think that there is definitely um, um, some suggestion based on, on the, the point estimate as well as their confidence intervals that there was um, some suggestion that uh, Black and Hispanic patients were or receiving opioid medications less. However, you know, due to the smaller sample size, um, this was not statistically significant. Yeah, that's an interesting, a really good point you make about not assuming anyone's race or ethnicity um, 
and taking it directly from the patient because I feel like that's an error that a lot. What do you think is your big takeaway for emergency physicians or possibly for physicians who might be medical directors for EMS services? Yeah, I think I think uh, I think we need to be highly vigilant, right? I think um, I think uh, I think if anything, this study suggests that um, you know the, these disparities may exist, and we need you know ensure that uh, we need more. First, we need more research on this, and then second, you know we we need to really sort of ensure that their processes are in place that that uh, you know any disparities that do exist, uh, we limit them. Um, and again, to ensure that, you know, everyone gets equal care um, across. I agree. Yeah. And I'm excited to see how this will unfold in the coming years as more research is done and um, the, the effects of the consensus conference this year for SAM on healthcare disparities. I'm hoping that we will see a lot of improvement in the coming years. So thank you so much, Dr. Nishijima, for joining me today and sharing your research. And congratulations on being selected for a plenary abstract. And thanks again for your time. Great. Thank you, Carly. All right, welcome back. I am here with uh, Lauren Westifer, assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Bay State, and this year's winner of the FOMED Excellence in Education Award. Uh, while Dr. Westifer is a fixture in the FOMED uh, community through multiple sources, including her blog, The Shortcoat, uh, the FOMCast podcast, as well as multiple guest appearances on your favorite uh, FOMED podcast. Um, she has really established herself uh, across medium, including traditional publications, and being the uh, methodology editor at Annals of Emergency Medicine, the social media uh, editor, as well as an associate editor of uh, Journal Watch Emergency Medicine and the New England Journal. Um, so Dr. Westford, uh, congratulations on your award and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we're going to start small on your opinions of FOMED. What you think the state of FOMED uh, is, uh, directions and kind of your decision to split both traditional and uh, FOMED, um, as well as uh, advice that you would have for people, uh, particularly junior learners that are looking to get into either medium. So basically you're looking for history, evolution, and synopsis of FOMED. All right, I'm gonna make this quick, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, it's, it's, it's so fascinating because I came across foam as a medical student and it's sort of what prompted me to go into emergency medicine actually even before i started listening to mcrit when i was like oh no i just got into med school and i was a middle eastern history major what am i going to do i have to learn medicine um and it was cool because it was like cutting edge it was critical care and i like so obviously i was like i have to do emergency medicine um because this sounds so fun and um you know and, and so i think that free open access medical education it, it emerged from that that need to to talk about the really hard patients the really sick patients and what's fascinating is, is it's grown into like not just that but the mundane like i know jeremy faust and i started foamcast because we were like oh we need less critical care i mean we need let's be honest we need the same amount of critical care but we also need like to know about how to manage priapism and like vaginal bleeding in the first trimester and the, the stuff that like isn't that fun to really talk about, but like comes across paronychia, right? Um, and so I think it's really neat that foam has evolved to include those things, but also different media. So like even just Twitter sort of is, is now foam because people will take infographics and like distill stuff down so you can like look at a tweet and instead of just referring you somewhere else, 
it really can be standalone with infographics and and things like that, which I think is is fascinating because the principle of of taking taking knowledge, um, which should be free, and and diffusing it, I think it is really great. And I think that my sort of merging traditional publications and stuff with foam came out of, I mean, that's all because of foam. I was sitting there and I was reading Ryan Radecki's like Ian Litt of Note blog. And I was like, well, this is great. I did not get any of those things out of this paper. So I guess I don't really know how to read. Um, so I was like, I need to learn how to go read. And so it's, it's interesting that I think it, for many of us, foam is this starting point, this like springboard where it's like, okay, uh, now I'm really interested in something. I need to go and do the hard, dirty work to go figure out like, does this actually, is this the truth? Um, or does this fit with my version of clinical practice? Um, and do I agree with the takeaways from this paper or this practice pattern or something like that? So it's really, I think foam is really cool in that it, there are so many iterations and so many, so many different things um, and avenues and ways to take it. And so I sort of went backwards. I got really into blogging and podcasting and then was like, you know, maybe, maybe I can take some of those things and get the knowledge translation gap shorter by also working on the research end. So really, I'm like a incognito foam person in the, the research world. Um, so that's that's my sort of synopsis on where it's been, where it's going. I think it's just gonna continue to evolve. We know that that most students um, and and faculty, you know, especially junior faculty now who used to be students are 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 involved in foam. And I think that that's only gonna continue because I think that that getting paid avenues for things is the traditional model and that's going to continue because you have to you're required to get cme um but i think that it's just not sustainable in terms of getting knowledge out there super quickly and in a way that people are really excited to consume which is the the critical portion i think that foam really shines at yeah i mean your consumption to producer to researcher is uh, a track that i think is incredibly enviable to uh junior learners and where you uh would recommend that they start to get involved on the consumption side on the production side or really dive into the research and then you know use fomed as more of a dissemination tool you, you know so i think that that foam really is is perfect to blend with with research and dissemination in two ways. I think that, first of all, it can really inspire people and help come up with some research questions. So for example, um, the first paper that I ever published um, as co-first author in Annals of Emergency Medicine was on like essentially the myth of contrast-induced nephropathy. Where did I learn that? I learned it from Twitter. I learned it from blogs. I learned it from podcasts. And then I was like, you know, the radiologists aren't listening to me. Medicine isn't listening to me. Maybe if I hand them a paper with my name on it from a reputable journal, that will make an impact because saying I heard it on a podcast or referring people to, you know, some mediocre studies, that just wasn't doing it. And so I think that, that you know, it can help come up with research questions, which is really cool. It can help you come up with collaborators, which is really great for students um, and things like that. Right, right now, I'm working on a project, which is through AWEM, um, but it's all like people via Twitter and via email and people that I've never met, but I've looked up to. And so I think that you can reach out to people if you have an interesting idea or somebody's doing work in those lines um, that you're interested in. The other thing is, you know, it can help you build that foundation to figure out, like, not everyone's going to become a researcher. And that's that's actually a good thing, because that would make my job, uh, I'd have to be a little more competitive to get grants and things. Um, so please don't everyone uh, rush out to do that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, it's, 
it can help you find wherever that niche is. It helped me find out what I was passionate about in that area that I could really specialize in. And for some people, it's being charismatic and being able to turn um, educational content into something really exciting. For other people, it's visual representation of things. For other people, it's uh, taking the literature um, and really breaking it down and critically appraising it and making that accessible to people who really don't have the motivation to do that. So I would say, you know, look and see what, what you find interesting and what you find passionate about. And then uh, reach out to people. That's the great thing about foam is that people um, are, are typically very helpful and, and friendly, I think in emergency medicine in general, but, um, and, and always looking for, for people to collaborate or help out. So I think those are my major recommendations. That's fantastic. And your enthusiasm collaboration is incredibly inspiring and uh, well-deserving of the award. And Dr. Mild's uh, nomination letter was uh, absolutely fantastic to read. So uh, congratulations. I appreciate you joining us on the podcast and uh, enjoy the conference. Thank you so much. It was a really super great honor. Appreciate you having me. Excellent. Well, let's hand it back to Carly for another plenary abstract. I'm really excited to be talking today with Dr. Kira Garwal, who is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital, and a clinician scientist at the Swartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. She is one of the plenary abstract authors for her abstract titled Venous Thromboembolism in Patients Discharged from the Emergency Department with Ankle Fractures. Welcome, Dr. Garwal. Thank you. The research you're presenting here at SAM focuses on the incidence of venous thromboembolism in the setting of orthopedic injury. Why is this important to you? Well, ankle fractures are a very common injury that we see and treat in the emergency department on almost a daily basis. And the risk of blood clots in these patients with ankle fractures who require lower limb immobilization with either a splint or cast is a very important morbidity associated with our treatment of these patients that needs to be recognized and probably communicated to these patients as well. I got interested in this topic because there's currently no true consensus on how common blood clots are in these patients with ankle fractures. Previous studies have had a wide-ranging incidence of venous thromboembolism in patients with various lower limb, immobili- oh, lower limb injuries that require lower limb immobilization. So we don't really know what the true incidence of blood clots are in a specific group of patients with ankle fractures. Therefore, the practice of trying to prevent venous thromboembolism with thromboprophylaxis in these patients varies quite widely. Uh, So where I practice in Canada, I would say most emergency physicians do not provide thromboprophylaxis to these patients. Um, And in Ontario, we have access to unique province-wide databases that allow us to examine research questions and specifically this research question at a population-based level. And so this allowed us to provide more real-world evidence regarding the true risk of venous thromboembolism in this patient population. That's really interesting. So do you think that this might prompt studies looking at um, prophylaxis for these patients? I hope so. Um, So our our study results had shown that there is an increased risk of venous thromboembolism in patients with an ankle fracture that requires lower limb immobilization. So our study found an incidence of 1.3%, which is higher than the quoted risk of venous thromboembolism in the general patient population. Uh, and we also compared the risk of venous thromboembolism in control populations that we also discharged from the emergency department. And these patients, ha- uh, these patients with ankle fractures had a higher incidence of 
venous thromboembolism compared to control patients. However, the 1.3% incidence isn't huge. And so the question then comes into, the question that comes into play is whether it would be wise to offer thromboprophylaxis to all patients or select high-risk patients. And I still think that we have more work to do in terms of trying to select these high-risk patients in order to provide selective thromboprophylaxis. That sounds great. Yeah, the the risk of different populations, you know, is really interesting and something that um, I think will explode after this study because it's such an uh, an important topic. Did you have anything that you that was kind of unexpected in your in your findings? Um, I think it was um, the incidence being over five times higher. Um, in our patients with ankle fractures, incidence of venous thromboembolism, uh, it was quite a bit higher than I expected. Uh, so I, I thought that they would have a higher risk of venous thromboembolism, but control, compared to control patients, we found the hazard of um, blood clots was over five to six times higher than these control patients. So it was quite a bit higher than I had expected, uh, which was surprising. Yeah. Well, um, what advice do you have for any young physicians who might be listening that might in, be entering a career in research? Well, I think it's important to find an area of interest, uh, area of research that you're truly interested in and think can make a difference in patient care. I would say try to find research opportunities in areas where there's a lack of evidence, conflicting evidence, or variations in practice. Emergency medicine is a fairly new field of medicine, therefore there's so many exciting areas of research that have the potential to impact patient care. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Gerwal, and I congratulate you on having your abstract presented at SAM as a plenary abstract. Thank you so much for having me. I'm joined by Dr. Aceves a newly graduated physician from McGovern Medical School and soon-to-be EM resident at UT Houston. She's the presenting author of one of our uh, plenary abstracts titled Racial and Ethnic Disparities in the Pre-Hospital Management of Non-Traumatic Pain. A little bit of background about this study. Um, so it was a massive database study of pre-hospital encounters, a total of 1,300 agencies spanning 2.3 million patient encounters. Um, as it is looking at racial and ethnic disparities, it's important to know the patient population. So 68% white, 26% black, 5% Hispanic, and then less than 1% Asian and Native American. Uh, Dr. Aceves, uh, can you explain to us a little bit about this study and uh, what your results were? Hi, yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, so some of the highlights that we found um, that when it comes to the odds of pain medication administration compared to non-Hispanic whites, we saw that black patients were significantly less likely to receive pain medication while Hispanics were more likely. And then when it came to opioids specifically, we found that black patients and Asian patients were also less likely to receive opioid medications. Um, and then the odds of receiving pain medication within 30 minutes was something that we wanted to look at. Um, and we found that it was higher for Hispanic and Pacific Islander, but no different for a black population or, the, or any other of our um, populations. Um, but overall, we did identify that there were some disparities in the non-traumatic pain medication administration, showing that our, our black patient population were less likely to receive pain medication and opioids 
this is a massive data set, which has allowed you to create really tight uh, confidence uh, intervals in your presented data. Did that allow you to drill down any more about uh, maybe some of the underlying conditions and, and what might account for some of that uh, disparities from either a pathophysiology or a, a racial and ethnic bias perspective? Yeah, so our study was really focused on identifying whether disparities did exist in um, the non-traumatic um, pre-hospital setting. Um, and because it was, um, you know, we were using this ESO database, um, that we had some limitations on identifying confounders. Like we, we were not able to um, um, look at socioeconomic status um, or acuity of pain. Um, however, we were able to use like pain control, a pain score, um, and then we also fit um, agency as a random intercept to help um, account for any differences between some agencies prescribing more pain medication or more, more generous with like opioids. Um, so we're, we're really just focusing on whether disparities existed and we did find that they did. That is fantastic. This, uh, your ability to do this while in medical school is also fantastic. Well, run us through what are some of the challenges of, of getting this done, either from a mentorship perspective or, or, or time uh, management perspective to be able to pull off something like this? Yeah, well, I had a wonderful men mentor, Dr. Hubinger, and he focuses a lot on disparities work. Um, so when I approached him about um, doing research and we decided to look in this pre-hospital setting, um, he was really kind of my mentor through all of it. Um, it was um, throughout, you know, my fourth year and through interview season and everything that we were, um, that I was, you know, drafting the abstract and coding. But I think overall it was um, manageable just because of the great team that I worked with. Um, and it, it was a, such a uh, great thing to be a part of. So what are your next steps? What's your next move, either in this research or otherwise? So currently we are working on submitting a strong manuscript and we are trying to understand what can lead to these disparities. Um, even though our paper is just trying to identify whether they do exist, um, it's definitely very important to try to, to look at what can be causing it. Um, and I think overall there really is no one um, factor that we can look at. Um, however, you know, we need to look at whether it's um, interpretation of the paramedic, whether it's that some cultures are, you know, less likely to express their pain, whether it's language barriers, or, you know, whether it's a fear of addiction. There are, you know, some patients are more cautious with um, receiving pain medication because of their fear of how they're being perceived. So I think um, being just creating this manuscript and also trying to understand what leads to these disparities as our next steps. Well, it certainly adds to and promotes the conversation, um, which hopefully uh, we will have here at the meeting. And uh, I appreciate your time. Congratulations on the abstract and uh, anything else you wanna add? Um, well, thank you so much for having me. It's very, very exciting. This is going to be my first essay, uh, conference, so I'm excited to just be here. <laughs> well, that will do it for us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for participating in SAM21. And most of all, thank you for doing what you do. It's been an incredible year, and we hope to see you next year in person in New Orleans. Take care.